From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudalubov. Initiated by President Vladimir Putin, constitutional amendments were recently enacted in Russia that would allow Russia's current leader to run for president two more times, despite the constitutional ban. By the next presidential election, Putin will have served two four-year terms and two six-year terms. If he decides to use his new opportunity, Putin will be able to remain in power until 2036. By those changes, has Russia become more authoritarian? What kinds of authoritarian systems exist in the world today? Do democracies, or the West as a political and cultural concept, still have the appeal they once had for this part of the world, the former Soviet Union? Does the left-right divide make sense in today's world? Joining me to discuss all those things and more is Daniel Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles. Treisman is the research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, too. Treisman's work focuses on comparative political economy and Russian politics and economy in particular. He's published four books and many articles in leading political science and economics journals, as well as in the public affairs journals like Foreign Affairs or Foreign Policy. Daniel Cheesman's recent notable work includes a groundbreaking article co-written with The Economist Sergei Guriev, A Theory of Informational Autocracy. So, hello Daniel, and here's the question. Which way is the Russian regime moving considering the presidential term limits have essentially been removed now. What do you think? It's interesting. I have never thought that the formal institutions were that important in Russia. And my basic reaction to these constitutional changes, or at least particularly the resetting of the clock, is that it doesn't change very much because we were unsure what was going to happen in 2024 before we're still a bit unsure about that because, I mean, Putin hasn't, he's, Putin has increased his options. He hasn't reduced them. He hasn't committed himself to run again in 2024. And I suspect that he makes these decisions only when he has to. Right now, it looks like he's biding his time and letting everyone know he doesn't want to decide it right now. Right. And and trying to uh, prevent a succession struggle or conflict exactly. between elites or what? Of all this. He says, right. he says right. so openly. So he said that, so, you know, the day after, do we actually have a different expectation about what's going to happen? Well, I don't really. Does it change the system in some way? Well, no, not really. I, I mean, there's still in the Constitution, correct me if I'm wrong, there's still going to be a two-term limit, right? Just for him, <laughs> he won't have to yeah, abide by it. As far as I understand it, it's kind of a schizophrenic Constitution because there are three chapters in it that um, could not be changed in a procedure that the Russian government used. And those chapters remain intact with all the provisions that are still in there. They've just corrected the constitution through other chapters that they could change. So, so my sense is that when you have a president who can easily change the constitution, the constitution doesn't mean all that much. 
The Constitution means something when you have a president who can't change the Constitution. And so everything, for me, comes back to the political circumstances. And at present, Putin is able to produce the political circumstances under which he's not constrained by the Constitution or by much else. So my way of looking at all this is that, you know, change is going to happen in Russia, but the way it'll happen is that the circumstances will change in ways that are not completely predictable or under Putin's control. And when that will happen and how that'll happen, we just don't know. So, but the change in the constitution itself, I think means a lot less than it would in a country where the constitution does have significant power, where there are balanced forces such that having a supermajority to change the constitution is rare. In Russia, basically, Putin has been able to change the constitution from very early on. He chose not to for a long time. And then he did a little in 2008. And now he suddenly, I mean, everything's kind of changed with Putin since, well, let's say 2012, 2013. All the things that he was carefully not doing or, or doing back then, he's, he's changed. He's become much more internationally assertive aggressive and risk-taking. He's uh, changing the constitution <laughs> for all sorts of nonsensical reasons and, and in all sorts of crazy ways. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that's an answer to the question. I think it's less and less predictable, but also the institutional stuff continues to, to matter very little. Do you think there are things that he considers unchangeable? As a Russian, I have to say, I always felt that the Constitution was not really something that you could really, really rely on. For many in Russia, it feels a bit foreign. So it probably is a matter of learning and educating Russian society about it. Still, there must be something that people like Putin and his inner circle consider very important, something they cannot change, something that stops them. Do you think... There are things like that. That constrain him? Yeah, the constraints, the important things that are unchangeable, that are the red lines. No, I think he, he views the world as a realist. You know, the realists in the West view it that everything depends on power and both internationally and domestically. I think he feels that the security services are very important and if those were to get out of his control, then that would become a constraint, but not because of any formal reason, just because of because they were a big part of how power is exercised. He recognizes, you know, the power of other other countries in the world, and he views. I think he views all this as a kind of ongoing competition from which you can never escape. So no, I don't see. I think he feels that you have to bring the population with you and you can't completely falsify that. He feels that he has the support of a big part of the population. He feels it's important to keep that support. So maybe you could say that's a constraint, but again, it's not a formal constraint. He thinks he can boost this support by things like constitutional ban on gay marriage and saying in the Constitution that the minimum wage has to be high. <laughs> so I think he, he, he thinks there are certain elements in the system which are important, the security services, 
uh, support of the majority of Russians, you know, and he thinks the inv international environment matters. Very okay, realist, but... not formalist. Some people say, or let's say, ask a question. If there are degrees of being an authoritarian regime, has Russia now moved into a more authoritarian territory? I was still thinking of those terms even. The way I think about this is in terms of this argument that, that uh, Sergei Gudiev and, and I have made, and, and we're working on this book about what we call informational autocrats. And so we see there, we, we see a division between, you could say two types of authoritarian regimes, Of course, it's not a, a sharp division, but there's one type that uh, emphasizes ruling through fear and violent repression, uh, which we call old type or overt dictatorships. And there's one type which rules without much visible repression of the general public and instead uses a lot of manipulation of information, manipulation of the media and so on, and co-optation. So The question, how I would think about the question is, has Putin moved from informational autocracy, this mode of surviving through manipulating public opinion, to the mode of overt, openly repressive dictatorship? And I would still see him as he's moving in that direction. And Erdogan also has probably moved all the way in that direction, just the number of people that Erdogan has imprisoned. I mean, that it's very hard to look at Erdogan and say he's not using visible repression. Clearly, he is. With Putin, the number of political prisoners on Memorial's list has risen and risen. A lot of those are religious prisoners, really, more than political prisoners. They're Muslims who are accused of something related to terrorism or extremism, which is a slightly different category. If we look at liberals or communists or nationalists uh, who are arrested for political reasons, that's, I would think, more in the range of 100, 150, which is much more than it was. So Putin is definitely moving in the, in the direction of more overt repression. But I still think he's not trying to scare ordinary people. He's trying to uh, represent ordinary people and convince them that he's a good president. Um, he's definitely repressive against the opposition-educated fringe, right? But that's part of censorship. Uh, the important job for, a, for an informational autocrat is to prevent the well-informed fringe who see what a bad leader the dictator is from communicating that to the general public in a convincing way. So part of that is intimidating, blocking just deactivating opposition media and opposition political activists or politicians uh, and using some repression for that is, is not unexpected. It's not against the model. Clearly, the way they see Russian society, the big part of normal people are traditional in outlook and basically support Putin. And then there's this fringe. Yeah, I, so I say fringe or, or call it sect, whatever who doesn't and who are disloyal. Yeah, and you, you have to deal with them. You have to stop them corrupting the, the loyal mass. So that's, yeah, that fits with kind of how I was thinking that they think. Okay, 
when you are thinking about those regimes, do you still have in mind this old concept of yours, the idea of a normal country? Which countries Russia should be compared to today? If we look at other cases of what uh, Sergei and I call informational autocracies, they're all a bit different, but they have these similarities. So Venezuela under Hugo Chavez was was a bit like this. Under Maduro, it's more overtly repressive. So we talk about Fujimori, Orban in Hungary, it's more and more similar. Other Latin American regimes like Rafael Correa was quite similar. Malaysia, obviously Malaysia is different in, in some ways, but if we look at sort of the level of democracy or authoritarian control in Malaysia, it's quite similar. So, yeah, if you want to push me, I would say, yes, I, I don't think that the basic expectations about what happens with middle-income pr- countries has changed very much. But countries have got a lot richer since since uh, I first wrote about normal countries. And so now Russia is kind of at the limit. If we draw a graph looking at, you know, all the countries with $25,000 a year per capita GDP, which is about what Russia has today, then you get three groups. So countries richer than Russia today fall into exactly three groups at the moment with no exceptions. So one group is rich democracies. Uh, another group is is countries that have enormous amounts of, of oil and are very authoritarian. And the third group is Singapore. In the old days, you could put Hong Kong in that group. But you have those three groups. It's very striking on a graph. I've made the graph. I can send you if you want. But it's it's very striking. You have these three groups, these three different ways in which rich countries exist. So countries with more than 25,000. Malaysia is also a little bit below 25,000. And, you know, maybe it'll, maybe Russia will define some new path. Obviously, Russia wants to be Singapore, but nobody has succeeded in being Singapore. And Singapore is very different from most countries in a lot of ways. Russia can't be one of the super oil wealthy countries because although it has some oil, it has much less per capita than countries in the Persian Gulf that are in that uh, successful, rich authoritarian segment. Russia at the moment doesn't, Putin doesn't want to be a rich democracy. So all we see are the patterns. We don't know what's going to happen, but there aren't many models. In fact, there are no models other than Singapore of a country that has remained authoritarian and has continued to get more and more economically developed beyond the point where Russia is today. If we get back to those, you know, kind of thinking about authoritarian democratic regimes, what is today's thinking. How do you think about these divisions between the regimes? Is this even important, the gap, the division, the boundary between being democratic and non-democratic? It's extremely important in many ways, but it's a spectrum of regime types, I would say. So there isn't a sharp, clear division where if you're one point to the left, you're authoritarian. If you're one point to the right, you're democratic or, or, or vice versa. Of course, if you're going to do any analysis, you have to, you have to have dividing lines. But if I think about regimes, so we ha- we go from the really complete, effective democracies, like maybe, I don't know, Germany, 
uh, down through kind of populist, corrupt democracies, including the US, Italy under Berlusconi, maybe Argentina, especially under the Kirchners, you know, these really bad populist cases. And then you keep going and then you get to some of these, you get to authoritarian states, maybe like Singapore and then Russia, Chavez in Venezuela and so on. And you keep going and you get into the more violent and almost totalitarian. Well, okay, before you get to the almost totalitarian, you get Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt and so on. And then eventually you get to North Korea, right? So, so you have this complete spectrum. Would you rather live in Germany than in North Korea? Well, it's a stupid question, right? Is it a big difference between Argentina under the Kirchners and Ecuador under Rafael Correa? No, it's a tiny difference. So, yeah, I think the only reasonable way to think about it is a spectrum. Well, I remember very well, even I do remember that, the late 80s, probably even the early 90s, when the aspiration was unquestionably in the direction of moving towards the democracy. There was no question. It was the only direction possible. And it does not seem as unquestionable now. And I mean, obviously, of course, you've studied all the regime changes, the history of democratic change. What is the aspiration now? Where do you think people want to move? Which direction they want to go these days? There really isn't any alternative. There's no alternative political model that people might prefer to democracy. It's just that the level of enthusiasm for democracy has fallen in a lot of places, in part because they see that what's called democracy in their country is very unsatisfactory for a lot of reasons. I don't think that there's many people in the world who really are yearning for a military dictatorship or for a one-party corrupt dictatorship like in China. People talk about a China model. I think what they really mean is effective, rapid economic development. <laughs> and who wouldn't want effective, rapid economic development? That isn't a model. <laughs> that, that, that's an economic result. Um, I don't see any alternative political model that anyone will seriously defend uh, so what's worrying is rather the, the, decrease, the increase in negativity towards democracy while at the same time accepting that it's the only alternative. And it's also partly, I mean, if you ask people in any country, how should leaders be chosen? Should they be chosen by experts? Should they be chosen by the previous leader? Should they be <laughs> born into the leadership uh, or should they be elected? I think everywhere people will still say elected in honest, fair, competitive elections. So there's no alternative, but we're not as starry-eyed as we used to be, I guess, about what democracy is and what it'll produce. Fair enough. But why do you think then in places like Russia, and I'm sure not just like in Russia, you see people who are, you know, who no longer want to go in this direction. I actually cannot imagine people in Russia or in some other countries creating a popular pro-democracy movement. It's really unimaginable now. They may be asking for all kinds of things, all kinds of changes, but not a real regime change. 
There's no enthusiasm. Was it just a historical aberration of the late 80s, early 90s, when we saw a lot of those regime changes, uh, when the regime really moved and changed in the direction of a democracy? Let me say two things. First of all, it's not a historical aberration. There have been three big waves of democratization. Uh, we've reached a plateau in the third wave. So we don't see much forward momentum for the past 10 years, maybe, maybe 15 years. But that's because there was this enormous burst, as you said, in the 1990s, even starting in the mid-70s and accelerating. So there was this enormous increase in the number of democracies. And now we've hit a plateau. There's nothing to suggest that the, that the long-term direction of change has changed, although, of course, it could have. But there's no particular reason to think that there won't be a fourth wave at some point, and that there, weren't, there couldn't be incremental change in a lot of places before that. So that's the kind of big global picture. Within Russia, uh, I think we had some agitation for democracy in 2011, 2012. You don't have to use the word democracy. You, you can be demonstrating for honest elections. Uh, that's really the same thing. You can be demonstrating for turnover of leaders. I think there's... So a, it was, I think there's it was, uh, to me, it was about being more, uh, the regime being more inclusive. People just wanted to have a say. Well, you can, that's also part of democracy. Yeah. The word, But, it's just the word, the word, people hate the word as in lots, lots of associations people don't want. Yes, they, they, maybe they hate the word, but they still, they still quite yeah. like the elements of the thing. So we shouldn't... Uh, shouldn't get too confused about that. And plus, a lot of people don't know what it means, the word, anyway. But if you, tell, if you say, do you, do you think people should be free to say what they like without going to jail? Do you think people's, people should vote for their leaders and the votes should be counted fairly? You know, it's almost, it's, it's almost hard to say no, <laughs> I'm against that. It's almost, it feels almost tautological in this sense. So yes, people, people don't like the, they don't like democracy, they don't like Democrats. They do like free, free and fair elections and freedom of the press and freedom of association. <laughs> so, and, and there's no alternative. There's nothing that people want. So, so I think the, the movement in Russia is definitely towards greater readiness for more real democracy. And it could come as initially just being given more participation, taken, taken into account more in decision making, but Uh, society, I think, would would like a more responsive kind of uh, political leadership. Do you still consider the natural resources, the way the government generates its income, as an important factor, meaning in this whole equation of regime and popular movements? Yes, but it's it's complicated. So I think okay. So there's there's parts of this which are easy to kind of document and demonstrate with data. And there are parts which are interpretations which are not as clear in data. But the way I see it is that the industrial development and economic development uh, has many dimensions. And some of these dimensions may be more important for democracy, others less important. If you have a country where the economy is dominated by natural resources, and the natural resource sector is owned by the state, and other 
well, other sectors of the economy don't develop because basically the natural resource sector dominates and education levels stay low, then there'll be very little pressure for democratization. But if you have education rising, values changing in the way that they very predictably do change as countries develop economically, if you have a country really moving from the industrial phase into the post-industrial phase, if you have people working in jobs which require creativity and critical thinking, like what you do or what I do, with higher education, especially interacting more with the outside world and among themselves in a society, then that creates over time pressures for greater participation, greater democracy. So natural resources can be a problem if they dominate the economy and prevent it from moving into the post-industrial phase. And especially if they also keep education levels low and uh, women out of the workforce and with even lower education levels. So, so we have countries that have been like that in the Persian Gulf and, of course, very little pressure for democracy. Some of those are actually now changing in interesting ways. The level of female education has soared in the Persian Gulf over the last 10, 20 years. That's starting to have some impact, which we see. Internet and connections to the outside world make a difference, I think. So natural resource wealth it can be important, but it's one aspect of a more complicated set of processes or set of, set of factors. When I was younger, there was the West, the first world, and there we were back in the second world. We would never call it that back then, but um, there was this common aspiration to move in the direction of the first world, the rich democracies, or the West. And it was really a significant, significant part of the appeal, because the West was prestigious. It was a comprehensive idea which included not just being a rich democracy, it also included the culture, being attractive, interesting. It was about the music, the arts, everything else. People being more relaxed and free. I remember very well, it was something incredibly striking for someone who for the first time found themselves in a Western country in the 90s, to see people who are very, very different in their posture and the way they behave. So anyway, there's this whole range of issues that included this appeal. Do you think a West as an appealing concept still exists? What is the West these days, especially taking into account the developments in the United States, which, well, used to be considered the leader of the free world? It's very sad, but the image of the West has, uh, has suffered a lot of damage for lots of reasons, but which accumulate. So, and at the same time, I mean, especially for the for former communist countries, uh, you now have a lot of the things that you admired in the West. I mean, things like relative freedom to talk, to choose your life, and consumption, high levels of consumption if you can afford them. A whole bunch of things happened, which I think were disastrous for the West from you know, 1991 on. I mean, disastrous may be, yeah, disastrous. 
I mean, I think failing to keep on top of Islamic terrorism was really bad. 9-11 changed a lot of things. The war in Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq caused a lot of damage to the image of the West. The global financial crisis was a financial crisis that was really caused in the West that was based on a lot of dishonesty and that then spread to the world and depressed the world economy for 10 years. Those things and many others, which I'm not remembering, I think led to a kind of, uh, well, it brought the West down to earth. It showed the West to be deeply imperfect and capable of enormous errors, corrupt in many ways. I mean, these free markets that were supposedly the model for economic development turned out to be dominated by corrupt bankers who didn't really understand what they were doing and crashed the whole world economy. So I think a lot of things led to a deterioration in the image of the West. And so people have been trying, trying, trying to come up with some sort of better alternative, and they've totally failed. <laughs> I mean, the Chinese model, Asian values. I mean, in, in the West, they're trying too. So the, the young generation, they're, they're talking about socialism. They're, all the students these days are interested in what socialism really is. Is there a better way to do things? All the attempts to come up with something better have, or some better tradition than the Enlightenment tradition have failed. So we're left with, I mean, this gets back to the same answer to the question about democracy. We're left with the same single alternative that you can believe in, but it's been tarnished. There's less enthusiasm. And I think that'll change as people have new ideas, which reconstruct the West, which, and partly, there's probably a lot of very creative stuff going on, which we just don't recognize the implications of yet. So there've been huge strides during precisely this period in values, in changes in norms that are very important, but have not been kind of combined into some new synthesis that we can call the new West. Things like tolerance for sexual minorities, I think now we may be on the cusp of real change in terms of, at least in the US, in terms of unacceptability of racism. There's, so this progression in values to higher and higher levels of tolerance for different identities. So, okay, so part of the dissatisfaction with the West, both in the West and outside, comes from the fact that the people who are the people who are committed to the this progress of the West are disappointed with the failures of the West to progress and to synthesize. So there's this kind of internal dissatisfaction, the fact that we still have people like Trump and part of American society that will support Trump. So there's that disappointment. Then there's the disappointment from outside by the people with who still have an old set of values, which is Putin and Orban and the people who look over and see all these homosexuals <laughs> in Europe with these, these uh, women with beards and so on and think, you know, the West is really, really, uh, really terrible, right? So we have these two totally opposite kinds of dissatisfaction, which in a weird way link up to produce this just sense that everything is wrong. But we may in the next 20 years 
come to a new kind of version of the image of the West in which things hang together a little bit better. If, if the kind of the Trump constituency is finally defeated, and that may take longer than 20 years, but if, if basically uh, the U.S. system finds a way to reinvent itself, so it's not completely blocked by Republican politicians with really pre-modern views, then, you know, there may be a, a kind of a reinvigoration of the image of the U.S. and of the West. Do you think the left discourse has a future? The leftist thinking, which seems to be on the rise in many quarters and in many countries? I think left and right will never completely disappear, but I think it's probably the wrong division. It's the wrong cleavage. And okay. people have been talking about this new cleavage of open-closed, mm -hmm. international or national. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say what the left means these okay. days. In industrial society, it meant support for the workers, basically. But we're not in industrial society anymore. Post-industrial society where, I mean, one way to think about it is we now have, we now have basically three important classes. One is the old working class. Well, actually, it's, it's, in some places, it's so small that it's almost not an important class anymore, but still culturally, it's quite important. Then we have a poor, low human capital services class, hamburger cooks and poorly paid service workers, truck drivers and so on. And then we have a creative class, which is getting bigger and bigger, maybe 30, 40% of the population, people who are, who are basically creating ideas. And we have this kind of cultural division and really unclear, it's really unclear what kind of uh, it, it, social institutions we need for that kind of economy. So it doesn't map on to a clear kind of left, right, policy dimension. There are issues about role of the state, of flexibility, but they're not really the same issues as in the age when it was perceived as being just about redistribution of cash, basically. Totally, yeah. Well, I was born in the Soviet Union, so apparently there's still this optics that's still at work. Whenever I see um, these think, or let's say I think about um, the left and the right, I, for example, I bump into phrases like in the New York Review of Books, I see articles about surveillance capitalism and uh, in um, publications elsewhere, let's say closer to the East, I see uh, articles about surveillance state. Well, in Russia, definitely. And um, whenever people are worried about surveillance, I'm worried about this surveillance state. I'm not really worried about surveillance capitalism. Although I know many friends of mine in Germany or in the United States who are worried about Facebook uh, taking their personal data and selling them, the people, essentially as commodity. But even knowing that, I'm not really afraid of that. And I do realize this is kind of a legacy view. And this is, by the way, the vision Uh, very common for Europe, especially Western Europe. I'm now uh, sort of as if I'm looking, uh, I'm looking from Central Europe. And uh, for this place, it's less common. So this, the whole issue uh, about leftist and uh, rightist understanding of the world, uh, what do you think about that? 
Well, I mean, these issues about surveillance capitalism, I think they're serious. I think the people who are studying them at the moment are not getting that deep, uh, at least based on what I've read. It'll take some time before we've really thought through all the issues about surveillance capitalism. Surveillance state, I'm totally with you. I think, I think that authoritarians are using surveillance technologies in, in ways which can make them more powerful, um, or at least can help them survive. So that's, that's something to worry about in terms of Europe. And, but I, I mean, you were asking about the left and the right. So in a sense, you can say that the people who are worried about surveillance capitalism are on the left, but it's a, it's, it's a new kind of left. It's a very new kind of left, right? It's, they're very different from the old unions who wanted a better deal from the yeah, bosses. Sure. And so I think there's just a whole, set of issues, which are new, which maybe will end up getting mapped into left-right space, but which may end up just being totally different dimension. I think those issues are really serious. How do we, how do we keep freedom? How do we keep individual rights when certain organizations have such power to influence our lives through control of information about us? I, I think it's a serious question, whether it's a capitalist corporation or, or the state that's doing it. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash canon.